I've been working more hours at hospital this year and late last year, so I've, I've converted my preparation to just um, a more rapid-fire preparation, putting some PowerPoints together as I go without thinking about the words I'm going to say particularly and just hoping it all comes together, trusting the Holy Spirit. So I only say this to say, feel free to give me some feedback. If you feel my sermons are working fine, that's great. If you feel that they're not working as well as they used to work, let me know and I'll do some further adjustments. Um, but let's start with a question for everyone. Um, have you ever been a, a target in some sort of way because you've lived in a godly way or, or done the right thing? Okay, do you want to tell us, Steve? Yep. We drove down to Bali and drove back in last Sunday. And the absolute garbage and lies that got me about things I was supposed to be done. Because you were leaving early to come to, to Easter church services. Yep. Isn't that, that's the perfect example. So you decide to follow your faith and all you're doing is driving home early and someone says some lies about you because of it. Yep. Anyone else been a target because they've lived in a godly way? Yeah? Don't want to share? No, you don't have to. If it's personal, I don't, don't want you to have to share something. Anyone else? Yes, your parents. Do you want to tell us? Yep, and you probably get a little bit paid. Yep. Perfect example. <laughs> yep. 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 Very good example, isn't it? It's often the family that can can do that to us. Um, living a God-centered life does sometimes make us targets. I was thinking about some Bible stories. Look at Joseph. Here he was uh, in the Old Testament in the Book of Genesis. He was a man who was just doing his job, working hard for his master. And the master's wife wanted to sleep with him, commit adultery. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That would be wrong. And so what did she do? She tore away his clothes and said that he raped her and he ended up in jail just because he wanted to live in a godly way. But it happens today, as Camilla and Steve have just shared. You know, how many times have you been ridiculed because you won't join in in something which just doesn't seem right to you. I, I was thinking about uh, as a younger man going to Bucks Nights with friends and not going to the strip club or not going to the casino to gamble away money. And, you know, the ridicule you'll get from your friends because of that. There's often a lot of ridicule, like there's something wrong with you just because you want to live a God-centred life. Sometimes it's not just our friends and families, though. Sometimes it's actually the government that actually makes you a target when you live a God-centred life. Think of Daniel in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. There was Nebuchadnezzar saying, you must not pray to your God, you must pray to me. And he went and prayed anyway to Yahweh, to the true God. And he ended up in a lion's den because of it. And his friends ended up in fire because of it. Sometimes the government puts restrictions on. And the, to live a godly life means directly disobeying the government. That happens in North Korea all the time, in places like communist China, where this is a group of secret believers photographed in North Korea. They're doing something 
totally illegal, and if they got caught, they would be executed or sent to a prison camp because they're not allowed to worship God in North Korea. And of course, that doesn't really happen here, does it? Although, maybe one day it will. Things are changing slowly. This is an article um, which talks about some of the dangers now in parts of the world um, in Australia, in Victoria. And there are laws that are slowly creeping in that might prevent, prevent people from praying or sharing the gospel. There's certainly been cases in the UK and Canada where that's happened. So being godly can make us a target, which leads us to Acts 19. But let's uh, recap what we've done so far. So the book of Acts uh, starts around AD 30 with the last appearance of Jesus before his ascension up to heaven where the disciples see him return to God the Father. And in Acts 1.8, he actually specifies to his disciples what the mission of the church is by saying, you will be my witnesses first here in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Then over the next 10 years, the early church is led by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' key disciples. And that mission started to take place with Peter preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost to all the visiting Jews in Jerusalem when the power of the Holy Spirit came on him and he spoke and his, the other apostles spoke in tongues and there were tongues of fire on them. And they pre- presented the gospel to all the Jews visiting and um, many people became Christian that day. And then that, uh, that mission continued throughout Acts, the first few chapters of Acts, all the way up to Acts 10, which we saw last week. So the gospel was preached to Jews in the early chapters of Acts, but then to Gentiles, people who weren't Jews later. And uh, Peter took the gospel to Cornelius, which Malcolm spoke about last week. And again, as Peter spoke, the Holy Spirit descended on the people hearing the gospel and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and he was visibly manifest in them. And there, each time the gospel was preached and people became Christians, the Holy Spirit was present Then the second part of Acts moves into the mission then being led by Paul. So Peter was kind of like the the, the key church leader. Paul was the missionary then to the rest of the world. And this is now a little bit later. We're looking between AD 35 and 60. And initially Paul, of course, was the one who did the persecution. If you remember, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest people dragged them off in chains because they were followers of Jesus. He wanted to see them he wanted to see them arrested, beaten and even killed like Stephen the apostle was. But of course, on that road to Damascus, he had that encounter with Jesus. The light shone and he heard Jesus speak to him. Jesus asked him, "Why are you persecuting me, Paul?" And so that turned Paul's life around and he became the missionary to the rest of the world. And because of Paul, we have most of the New Testament written. We have Christianity reaching even the far shores of Australia. And that brings us to today's Acts 19 focus, which happened probably around AD 55. So Paul's been in action for quite a few years by this stage. So, um, do you want to read Acts 19, the first seven verses? Paul travelled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Interesting that there were twelve men, hey? So Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul did a lot of travelling throughout the Middle East, Turkey, Greece, Rome, a lot of travelling in his time. And uh, this is a map of his third missionary journey. So we know of three missionary journeys that Paul went on. And Acts 19 reports when he got to the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Sort of um, Ephesus. Can you see it there in the red section called Asia? You can see that, that arrow moving across. That's where he's got to. And that's where we are right now, city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a Greek city. It's now in modern-day Turkey, but it was a Greek city. Back in, in those days, the Greeks who started in places like Athens and Sparta, they sent ships all around and put settlements all over the place. And Ephesus was one of those cities that kind of was in the city-states of ancient Greece being part of Athens. But by the time of Paul, uh, no, by the time of today, it's now just a ruins, and this is, this is where modern-day... This is the modern-day picture of what Ephesus looks like. It's all in ruins now. But at the time of Paul, it was a very large city, probably about 250,000 people, um, which is is massive for an ancient city. Uh, And it was the capital of the area of Turkey where it is now, which was called Asia back then. It was a Greek city, like I said, um, but it was very, very multicultural. So it had Greek culture, Greek religion, the Greek language as the main part of it. But, of course, it was under Roman control. The Romans went through in the 200, 100 BCs and then up to now, and they were taking over all of southern Europe, northern Africa, the Middle East, including, of course, Greece and Turkey. So although it was a Greek city, it was under Roman control, so there would have been a big Roman influence. It also had a big Jewish population. So if you remember back 500 years before, 600 years before, The Jews had been totally wiped out by the Babylonians coming in and dragging them off to exile. And when that happened, Jews got dispersed throughout the ancient world. And it's called the Jewish diaspora. And uh, they ended up forming little cities all over the place, including in Turkey and Greece and northern Africa. And um, so there were plenty of Jews living in in, uh, Ephesus at the time. And of course, uh, Ephesus being a Greek-speaking city, like most of that world was Greek-speaking, they learned to speak Greek, they lost their Hebrew language, and they were called Hellenic Jews. And you can see them talked about quite a bit in the book of Acts. But they brought their culture into the city too. So this is a big city, multicultural, much like Australia today, with lots of religions, one language necessarily, like where English, they spoke Greek, but lots of different cultures within that mix, including Jews, Romans, and Greeks. And the big thing that Ephesus was famous for is the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. If you remember, there were seven ancient wonders of the world, like the pyramids, 
the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and the Temple of of Artemis was one of them. And Artemis was an ancient Greek god. There she is. Um, You can see that statue of her with about 15 breasts. (laughs) It's a bit of an odd statue, isn't it? Um, And uh, she was worshipped as a god of mothers and fertility and all sorts of other, uh, the goddess of the hunt. All right, let's uh, keep reading Acts. Who wants to read next? Mel. I'll come to you next. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persistently about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of this went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mel. For two years, the people throughout the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I just want to make a few observations about that little passage. There was one group of people in the synagogue and they didn't want to hear the gospel. And so you know what? Paul Paul left them, but he didn't give up. He didn't stick around where people weren't wanting to listen, but he didn't give up either. He went off to teach in this school. He found a new place and new people to share the gospel with. And then he did it for a long time. Sharing the gospel wasn't something that he just did once, and that made all the difference. He persisted for two years, he taught. Things didn't happen overnight, but they did happen. And it just reminded me of something else Paul wrote in the book of Romans, which is also a quote, actually, from Isaiah, I think. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Paul really took that to heart, didn't he? He spent two years just in Ephesus telling people about Jesus. And that's because that's God's mission for the church. That's his mission for his disciples, for Paul, and for us today. Our mission is to share the good news. It says that in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Jesus said that in Acts 1.8. I'm thinking of uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus said, we're called to be a light on the hill, and not to cover ourselves with a basket, but to shine out so everyone can see God, or our good works, and can glorify God because of them. That's what we do. That's our bit in the plan from God. We can do the sharing, but then we need to leave the outcome to God. All right, Neil, your turn. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, They were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews were travelling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time... When they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? 
Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered and bleeding. I think it says in the NIV. Okay, yeah. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honoured. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was $700 million. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. So a group of Jews tried to use the name Jesus for their incantations. Isn't that an interesting thing? They weren't even followers of Jesus and they were using his name. It just uh, reminds me, that, and probably reminds all of us, that when we preach, God makes the plant grow. And even there are times that people misuse God. It's God's name. And yet, doors can still be open when that happens. God's powerful. He works in all situations. Even when someone's talking about Jesus who's not a Christian, it can have an impact in a positive way because people can see the power of God through that. There were quite a few people there who practiced sorcery, burned their incantation book, according to the, the passage. So Ephesus was a place where people were really open to spiritual beliefs. You can see that picture of um, Artemis again. And uh, below there's a, a picture of um, a couple ancient Greek spells and incantations. The one on the, the left is an amulet that was worn to, to protect you and the other one was a curse book so if you want to curse someone you'd read the spell and curse them so Ephesus was a people where was a place where people were open to spiritual beliefs the problem of course is as you can see from that not all spiritual beliefs are good or healthy certainly not those ones anyway in our world too there are plenty of people very open to spiritual beliefs um, Nicole and I travelled 20 years ago through India and China and you see so many people in places like India and China open to spiritual beliefs. We landed in Bombay on the day of the Ganesh Festival and there people are putting a big statue of a god out into the, into the ocean to float away. And there's a, little, a man carrying a little one of his own personal shrine that he's going to put on the sea. And up the top there there's a, there's a roadside priest out in the middle of nowhere that we just drove past and we wanted to stop and see his god and see his shrine and then in China there's Buddhas everywhere and um, people praying to them we live in a world that's very open to spiritual ideas in lots of places like the people of Ephesus were some of them not so healthy or good though it's different for us though isn't it Um, in the west people aren't so open to spiritual ideas there's a picture of a bus from the UK. There's probably no God, so stop worrying about it. Enjoy life. People like Richard Dawkins are strong atheists who are strong proponents of not believing in God. And that's our culture. There's a, there's a lot of closedness to the idea that there's actually a spiritual realm out there. But that might be changing. I don't know what you think. Oh, I think that's changing, perhaps. Look at the newspaper. There's the horoscopes. So many famous actors and actresses who are Buddhist or or following another religion. 
Um, there's plenty of young people that are converting to other religions, like this woman here who has converted to Islam. And then you look at a lot of the churches like Glow down the road from us that's growing. Lots of people are still open to spiritual beliefs. And maybe the West is changing and maybe Australia is changing in one sense for the better. Because when people are open to spiritual beliefs, when they're open to the spiritual, spiritual light, light of God, that actually exposes evil in a way that can't happen when people don't recognise the spiritual. And when evil is exposed, there's reflection, there's repentance and change happens. And over time, society even changes. And that's what we saw happening in Acts 19. When people saw what uh, Paul was preaching and saw the power of the Holy Spirit in him, the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honoured and many, who be- many became believers confessing their sinful practices. It says here, the message of the Lord had a powerful effect. And so the story continues. Let's see what that effect was. Who would like to read next? Anyone? Thank you, Tim. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning in the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that the temple... Oh, that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, the anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus who were Paul's travelling companions and from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in to, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheatre. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Cool. Thanks, Jim. And I loved the voice. It was interesting. It was very posh-sounding silversmith. Um, the message of the Lord had powerful effects in, in Ephesus. But not everyone liked the changes that God affected there. The amphitheatre in Ephesus is huge. Here, here it is. And it seats 25,000 people. Can you imagine being dragged into that, 
trying to speak and for two hours a crowd of angry men shouting, great is Artemis, not letting you speak. It must have been an incredibly tense and frightening situation. Mobs are pretty dangerous, as we've seen. Plenty of mobs in the media over years, particularly when money's involved and looting's involved. And uh, these men were losing their livelihood because of the change that was happening in society, and they didn't like it. Good reminder about these words. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So let's finish the story about what happened. Who's reading the final section? I think Mabel might be. (laughs) Go on, Mabel, you can read. At last, the the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is one of the official guardians of the temple of the great Artemis whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought brought this man here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. If the Matrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the official can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges, and if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in legal assembly. I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with riots by the Roman government, since there is no cause for all this commotion, and if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them, and they dispersed. When the uproar was over, Paul sent the believers and encouraged them. Good thing they had a good legal system up and running, hey? When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. And that's how the story comes to an end. We read that story, we're meant to be encouraged. It's an interesting ending. So, again, I want to open up a question for anyone here. How do we find encouragement in this story? How can it encourage someone? How can it encourage you? Anyone like to share? Thanks for putting all the historical stuff in, painting the picture. I think for me, seeing the parallels between that culture and our culture really helps me see that the Word of God is 100% still relevant today, and I find that encouraging. Thank you. Yo. I think for me what is interesting is though something positive is coming into the culture, regardless of how... It, it changes it. There's always still negative connotations as well for other people. Like, although Christianity was coming into the picture, people's livelihoods were affected because it was based on something that wasn't, um, I suppose, right. But the fact remained that it was still taking away their livelihood, and that was like, uh, I guess, it angered the people. Yep, good thought. Neil? Sooner or later, someone's going to listen. So, you know, Paul was talking and, um, you know, sooner or later, someone's going to listen. Absolutely. 
This is good, good exercise. I don't think Nicole would say that's exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually, what I found encouraging was the statement the guy at the end said, and I don't remember, but um, just that they haven't spoken negatively, they haven't put down your goddess, they haven't stolen or diminished or ruined or trashed or, you know, vandalised their temple or anything. All they've done is spoken about Jesus and the way and what, you know, the, the way in which they live and their reason for it. And that's encouraging. You don't have to, you know, I found that encouraging. You just need to speak about Jesus and the reason why for your belief and what Jesus is asking us to do. We don't need to um, put others down or other things and destroy things or rip them apart. God will take care of that. It's not our place. That's a very important insight. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Anyone else? Shalanda stole what I was going to say, but um, <laughs> but I think I think to add to that, it's encouraging to see how if you do that, if you stick to just preaching the gospel, that you can rely to to a fairly significant extent on God's common grace expressed in the systems of society and government and stuff. And that's very encouraging for us, I think, as we're sort of, you know, as, as often as Christians we, we get very worried that our government, if it's not Christian, it's going to be anti-Christian, but that's not necessarily the case. Excellent. Yes, Robin. I thought it was interesting that the guys had to still endure two and a half hours of abuse and they had the strength to do that and that Paul listened to others and said not to go and he didn't. Um, it all... But God was in control is what I'm thinking of, that they had the strength to endure what they had to do and that the people like Paul, the, the leaders, still took advice from others um, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to go and rush forward and stuff. He stopped and stayed away and therefore was able to bring them all together at the end and offered them encouragement. Cool. There is heaps there, isn't there? So many different things to pick apart. Yeah, just jumping off your idea, Robin, like that God sometimes wants you to have a very small audience, not a big audience. And that obviously wasn't Paul's audience for that day. Um, and that's encouraging too yeah it's not just the big um, stadium style stuff it's the small interactions that count too cool thanks for all those thoughts I will share my final two thoughts about two ways I think we can find encouragement the first is we should be encouraged not to be afraid to speak about Jesus Uh, it doesn't mean we need to denigrate the beliefs of others but we can be confident when we share the good news of Jesus. And our job really is just to speak it. That's all, to share. It's the Holy Spirit that then does, he does the powerful work of changing hearts and we can leave that to him. As Paul also said, I planted the seed in your heart, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And the second encouragement is even, even when we do live a godly life and we do do what's right, we should expect pushback. 
We should expect consequences. Um, even if we're not pushing our views and opinions on others in an aggressive way, we should expect anger in this world simply because we're worshipping with others or simply because we're praying with someone or not participating in something that's sinful. Those things alone are enough for people to get angry. But when we get pushed back, we actually shouldn't worry. We should be glad because that probably means we're doing things right. Jesus even mentioned this. He said, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. So thank you for your thoughts. Thanks for listening to mine. I probably went a bit over time. Shall we continue with the song?